The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squawk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. And this week, our fine froggy friend Cracko has, I believe, two stories for us? I do. Two that are sort of short, so we're just going to combine them into a little two-part thing, because they're two stories that I found interesting. Uh, the first one being a, uh, a bank robbery that didn't quite go the way that the robbers wanted it to. I mean, most most bank robberies usually don't go according to plan because, you know, they usually get caught. But yeah. this one went a little a, a little little worse. Um, so this is the North Hollywood shootout. It was a confrontation between two very heavily armed and armored bank robbers. 26 year old Larry Phillips Jr. And I'm going to butcher this dude's last name and 30 uh, year old Emil Matasaranu. So wait, it's um, not like a shootout between robbers and cops. No, it's a shootout between robbers and cops. It's these two oh. and the Los Angeles Police Department. Okay, okay, I misunderstood. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a little bit of backstory on uh, the two, I guess, stars of the, the story here, if you want to call them that. Uh, so Larry and Emil, they first met at a Gold's Gym in Venice in Los Angeles in 1989. They were both interested in weightlifting, bodybuilding, you know, the normal stuff, but they were also interested in firearms. Before they had met, Larry was a habitual offender, being responsible for several real estate scams, numerous counts of shoplifting, you know, the, the usual criminal thing. And Emil was the, yeah, you, you know, the usual crimes, yeah. And Emil was a qualified electrical engineer and ran a pretty unsuccessful PC repair business. And on July the 20th, 1933, these two had robbed an armored car outside Littleton, Colorado. Wait. Then again, hmm? I thought you said this took place in the 80s. We're getting there. We're covering their previous adventures before we oh. work our way up to that. Oh, okay. Okay. They they met in 1989 at this Gold's Gym in okay. uh, Venice, L.A. Um, then after they, I guess, gotten to know each other, and they were like, hey, let's go rob some stuff together. Uh-oh. We're only human, and Krakow's notes said 1933, but a quick correction in this next section. It's actually 1993. That's when on July 20th, 1933, they robbed this armored car outside a bank in Littleton, Colorado. Then again, on October 29th, they were arrested in Glendale, just outside Los Angeles, for operating a stolen vehicle. Larry had surrendered with a concealed weapon, which led to the police searching the vehicle, where they found two semi-automatic rifles, two handguns, and more than 1,600 rounds of AK-47 ammo, along with another 1,200 rounds of 9mm and 45 ammo. What? As well as... There's more, but wait, there's more. As well as a radio, uh, radio scanners, smoke bombs, and improvised explosive devices, body armor, and three different California license plates. What the actual hell? Yeah. Now you see why I thought this was interesting, because, like, these guys went all out. They were, um, but upon finding all of these, uh, all of these supplies in the car, they were initially charged with conspiracy to commit robbery, and they both served a hundred days in jail and were placed on three years of probation. After they were released, most of this property was returned to them with the exception of the firearms and explosives, so they got, like, their armor back, their, uh their radio scanners, but they didn't get the any of the smoke bombs, anything like that back. Right. Um, 
And then again, a little bit later on, a few years down the line, on June 14th, 1995, the two again decided to rob another armored car. This time it was a Brinks armored car. I'm going to butcher this name. In Winnetka, Los Angeles. They killed one guard and seriously injured another during that one. And then we jump forward again. There's not much details on this one. It's just kind of like a summary of their uh, shenanigans, I guess, is where a word for it. It's it's definitely a word for it. Shenanigans. Yeah, it's it's something. You say shenanigans one more time. Shenanigans. <laughs> well, I've never seen ahead. Super Troopers, have you? If I say no, are you gonna smack me? Yeah. I'll get the shoe. <laughs> Super Troopers is one of those ones you have to see, my dude. Yeah, it looks like something I'd be interested in, so like, I definitely need to add that to my list of things I need to watch. So Correct. But we're only going to jump forward uh, one more time before the main event, so to speak. But uh, in May 1996, they robbed two branches of the Bank of America in the San Fernando Valley area, stealing around $1.5 million. So pocket change. Yeah, basically. And this is where the investigation... The investigators of this case gave them their nickname. They were known as the High Incident Bandits due to the weapons that they used. The High Incident Bandits. Yep. That is a mouthful. Yeah, and uh, speaking of mouthful, I've got some very large... Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, medical terms to use coming up, so that's going to be fun. Uh -oh. Uh oh. Um, did you did you like do the the Google thing that tells you how to pronounce stuff? No, I just sort of like very slowly said it and was like, you know, that's close enough. <laughs> so basically, what I usually do, and it usually ends up being wrong, but you know, we'll get there. You, like the add iron deck chairs. Yeah, those. Yeah, the the abacus chairs. Yeah. The Adirondack chairs. Yes, those. Named after. The Adirondacks? Yes. Anyway. <laughs> You're never going to live that one down. Oh, I, I understand this, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Okay. As long as you understand. But yeah, they were, they were named the High Incident Bandits by the investigators due to the weapons that they had used in these three robberies prior to the North Hollywood incident. So, our, uh, our main... Uh, our, our main course here for the story took place on February 28, 1997, at the Bank of America. This resulted in the death of both robbers and the injury of 12 police officers and 8 civilians. Oh my god. Including numerous vehicles and properties that were damaged or destroyed. So um, they literally went down guns blazing. Basically, yeah, because... Uh, all of this property damage and vehicle damage, it was all uh, done by the nearly 2,000 rounds of ammunition that was fired by both robbers and police. So, I know, like, things, times are different now. But I feel like if someone just buys thousands and thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition. They should be on a list somewhere, right? I mean, you would think it would, you know, it, 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 I guess if you, like, buy it all at one time, then, like, yeah, it raises a little concern, but, I mean, like, they could have bought it over time. Like, I'm, I'm not true. quite sure about that, but, like, yeah, wait like till you, you hear all that they year, brought it's not to this. as crazy as if you buy it in a day. Yeah, it's sort of like the whole don't buy all your party supplies in one place. What? I guess. Anyway. Wait, no, 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 no. What? No, I'm thinking back to a, a scene from the show uh, Breaking Bad where because, uh, you know, the, the show is about, you know, a, a yeah. teacher cooking meth, but um, yeah. basically he comes across two people in the store who are also in this business and they're buying all of their supplies to make this product in the same hardware store. So they've got, like, it's obvious what they're doing if you look in their shopping cart. So he just walks up to them and is like, bit of friendly advice. I know what you're doing. 
one, stay out of my territory. Two, don't buy all your stuff in one place. It makes it less obvious and less suspicious. Yeah, but where does the party supplies come from? I just said party supplies. I didn't know what else to call it. I just said party <laughs> supplies. I was just so confused. I'm like... Listen, I use some interesting words here. This is fine. This is fine. I'll I'm surprised you haven't learned this over yet. over here and my streamer's over there. Yeah, you know? The typical things for a bank robbery. You know, the, the party poppers, the streamers. <laughs> little party hats. Oh my god, could you imagine bank robbers showing up with little party hats on? Oh my god. I don't want people to rob a bank, but that would be hilarious. <laughs> now, I know, like, I tried finding the article, but it was so long ago. Talking about stupid bank robberies. It, again, tangents. You and I are great yes. at tangents. Um, when I was a kid, my dad, my dad loves, there's a, a news article, uh, news of the weird. <laughs> and it's always just like, you know, just weird stuff that happens. And I don't know where it was. I don't know when it happened because I was a kid, but somebody robbed a bank and their getaway driver lost the nerve and left. So the bank robber stole a steamroller. <laughs> and tried Fair to enough. get away on a steamroller. I mean, and hey, like, at least they didn't just give up, you know? I mean, they they tried. They probably could have run faster than a steamroller. Yeah, probably. And it probably would have been less obvious. You know, a steamroller is kind of like an obvious thing to be on the lookout for. Well, yeah, and like the cops could have just like walked next to him and be like, you coming down hey, you yet? Wanna just, you want to you just stop? Like, there's no reason for this. That's fine. We Did we you? we love a good rant, rabbit hole, tangent thing. Yeah. You don't even know what to call them. That's how good they are. Yeah, that is how good it is. It's 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 a it's its own thing. But let's uh, let's go down the extensive list of the everything that these two gentlemen had before they went into this bank. They wore homemade body armor. They had. AK-47s and M16 style rifles equipped with 100 round drum magazines. They also had an HK-91 rifle, which is just another type of semi-automatic rifle, all of which had been modified to be capable of select fire, so like they could fire one bullet per pull of the trigger, or they could hold the trigger down and just empty the empty all that they had, basically. I just hmm? as a, an observation, you don't go someplace armed like that unless you plan to use it and that's yeah. hard. that's terrifying that is absolutely yes. terrifying because we're it, not done yet yeah like you you just start like 100 round i magazines. just started and they already have three different rifles all of which which have 100 round drum magazines and can and are equipped to you know just empty all 100 bullets with a single hold of a trigger yeah and like that like, I don't know if you, you're going to go into this, but it's like, what was their plan? Like, if you're just going to go rob a bank... Their plan was to get in, grab a bunch of money, get out, and get away before the police showed up. Like that was the, the plan. The smartest, like, the... You know, they always say, like, the, the thing... The, the most, like, crazy or most effective weapon in a bank robbery is just a note. Yeah, like... Their their whole thing it seems like was like show of force kind of thing where it's like we have clearly have the upper hand here. You'll do what we say and we can get in and out very quickly and no problems. And we're going to touch on the several things that like led to this going sideways very fast. There were several things that they didn't count on that uh, kind of threw a wrench in their plans. I don't know if I'm ready for this or not. <laughs> But on top of all of these rifles, they also had a 9mm pistol. Each, each of them had a 9mm pistol. And this was just a rumor, so I don't know if this is 100% true, but they allegedly filled a jam jar with gasoline and placed it in the getaway vehicle with the intention of setting the car and the gear on fire to dispose of evidence. Don't know why they specified with a jam jar. I feel like that's, you know, an awful small jar. I, uh, yeah, but... I was just going to say, those are tiny. Yeah... So, I mean, I, I guess they thought there's... they were just going to light that and it would, like, kind of kickstart the whole thing. Um, so that's the weapons that they had. Larry wore 40 pounds of equipment, including a Type 3A 
ballistic vest, which is though that level of vest is usually designed to stop like handguns. It's not really designed to stop like rifle bullets and stuff like that. And a groin guard, as well as a load-bearing vest with multiple ammo pouches and several pieces of homemade armor that he created from spare vests, which covered his shins, thighs, and forearms. Emil only wore the 3A vest, but included metal ballistic plating. Additionally, each man had a watch sewn onto the back of one of their gloves to monitor their timing. They arrived at the bank in their white 1987 Chevy Celebrity at 9.16 a.m., you know, they are probably the guys that TLC wrote the song No Scrubs about, you know, pulling up from the passenger side of your best friend's ride in that... Possibly. That That's Chevy Celebrity, man. I mean, it could be. This is a pretty popular uh, event because of all that happened. Because uh, I, I, I talk about this later on, but this, this whole shootout that happened, this being a different time, um, this was all broadcast live on TV. The entire shootout was shown live on the news. Oh my god. From the helicopters. Oh my god. There's even video clips out there that you can see. There's nothing graphic, but you can see the robbers firing at something off camera, which would be police cars and police officers. Yeah. But like, it's very clear video and like, again, nothing graphic if you want to look it up, but you can basically see a shootout happen in the middle of the streets. So they get there at 9.16 a.m. and each took, now here we go with the names, each took phenobarbital. It's a sedative that was prescribed to Emil to calm their nerves. That is actually how you say it. Yeah, that's why I said and it slow. I know this because my cat growing up had to take phenobarbital. So on top of that, uh, toxicology would later find that Larry also had ephedrine, which is a central nervous system stimulant that is often used to prevent low blood pressure during anesthesia. It has also been used for uh, narcolepsy and obesity, those, though those are not like a common... That's not a common thing to use for those two, those last two symptoms or two things or whatever. I almost said symptoms. That's not a symptom. <laughs> Here we go with another long one. He also had phenylpropanolamine. It's a synthetic agent, which is used as a decongestant and an appetite suppressant. Yeah, we're going through all of their toxicology report here. Emil had uh, also had on top of all of that. That was Larry's report. Emil had phenytoin. It's an, it's an anti-seizure medication. Uh, so they synchronized their, their watch alarms for eight minutes, which was the time that they had estimated for police response before entering the building. Uh, because Larry had used a radio scanner, used a radio scanner to monitor police response to other robberies to come up with uh, their time frame for how long they had to get in and get out before police showed up. Though that's not going to help them in this case. So once they go inside, they, they do the whole thing. They order everyone to the ground, shoot a few rounds into the ceiling to, you know, show they mean business, I guess, before firing at the bullet-resistant door that led to the bank tellers and the vault. Now, unfortunately for the bank tellers, this door was only designed to withstand small arms fire, and it only took a few shots from their rifles to bust open the door. They ordered the tellers to fill the bags with money and from the safe, and at this point they realized there was a whole lot less money here than they had expected due to a change in the bank's delivery schedule. This made Emil very angry, so he emptied his 75-round magazine into the vault door, destroying the rest of the money. I know you have mentioned they're not that bright, otherwise they probably yeah. wouldn't have robbed a bank, especially in this manner. However, you would think somebody between the two of them, would have checked the delivery schedule. You would think that's something you double-check, you know, if that's what you're going for. You think you would double-check that. Yeah, like, you can sit across the street at a coffee shop and see when the truck comes. Yeah, like, clearly they've done they've done so much research, they know the police response time. But, but yeah, they, they didn't check the But they don't know when schedule. the money is there. Oh, it gets even better. It gets even better. Oh, no. They were only able to obtain $303,305 and three die packs, which later exploded, ruining all of the money that they stole. Rather, th what they had initially expected to steal was $750,000. They so only they got, got the 303000 and then they ruined all of that because they, they got some die packs with it. So after all of that, Emil decides to go for the bank's ATM. But, here we go again with another but, 
Due to policy changes, the branch manager no longer had access to the money inside the ATM. This so while Emil like a and bureaucratic nightmare for robbers. Really is like everything that could go wrong is going wrong for them. Like, but I, uh, I don't know about you, but like when I have a day like that, I'm like, I, I just give up. I'm done. At that point, you need to just leave while you yeah, can. Yeah, I would just be like, you know what? Nope, this isn't worth it. I'm yeah, done. the first time something went wrong should have been their cue to like just leave. Yeah, it's like, well, bye. Because uh, <laughs> unfortunately for them, what they did not know was that two police officers who were on patrol saw them enter the bank with their ski mask and their rifles and everything, and they called for backup which responded within just a few minutes, and they surrounded the bank while they were inside doing all of this. So at approximately 9.24 a.m., Larry left the bank through the north doorway after noticing a police car about 200 feet away. Larry sees the police car and decides to open fire, wounding seven officers and three civilians. Our boy Larry here also decides to shoot at an LAPD helicopter that was surveying from above, forcing it to retreat to a safer distance before briefly taking cover inside the bank, only to reappear again through the north door, while Emil left through the south door. Now, another thing that is not good about this is, because of the time that every, all this happened, police officers did not carry rifles or body armor. They only had their standard uniform, shotguns, and a small caliber handgun, oh, which they soon no. discovered, unfortunately for them, the, the weapons that they had were unable to penetrate the robber's body armor. An officer was heard on the radio about 10 to 15 minutes into the shootout warning other officers that, and I quote, they could not stop the getaway vehicle, they've got automatic weapons, and there's nothing that we have that can stop them. So upon realizing how badly they were outgunned, some of the officers took to nearby pawn shops and gun stores to grab whatever they could from the stores to stop these people. Oh they just went into the gun store and was just like, give me whatever you got. Just to kind of hold them off a bit until the SWAT team could arrive. Yeah. So Emil at this point has been shot several times in the bank parking lot before he drops his duffel bag of money and gets into the getaway car. Larry grabs his other rifle from the trunk and he continues firing at officers while he's walking alongside this car. So basically Emil is driving the car slowly down the street while Emil is walking by the passenger door and firing using mm -hmm. the car's like cover. Using it almost like a shield. Pretty much. Um, as he approached the passenger door, Larry was hit in the shoulder and his rifle was struck on the receiver. Uh, after shooting a few more shots with one arm, he dropped this rifle and got the other one before leaving the parking lot and retreating onto the street while Emil drove. So at around 9.52, they both split up and Larry took cover behind a truck and eventually his rifle had jammed so he switched to his pistol and fired a few shots uh, at police until an officer just got very lucky and hit him in the hand causing him to drop his gun. After he picked it back up, he realized that uh, things weren't looking so good because uh, he's running out of ammo and weapons to use. So uh, Larry takes his handgun and puts it to his chin. Oh, God. Um, as he fell, an officer shot him in the torso, severing his spine. SWAT team is there at this point, and they have higher caliber weapons, but those still had very little effect on the body armor that they had. The SWAT team had also commandeered an armored car. I don't know exactly if this was like their armored car or if they found like a, an armored bank car or what they took. It just says they commandeered an armored car. It was armored. Um, <laughs> it was some sort of armored car. <laughs> but uh, they used that to evacuate the wounded so that way they, they had a little bit of extra cover. Oh, good. Well, while all that was happening with Larry... Three blocks away, Emil's vehicle was rendered inoperable due to the two of the tires being shot out and the windshield being covered in bullet holes. So at 9.56, he tried to carjack a pickup truck by shooting at the driver who got out and fled on foot. He was he was unharmed. He, they, I guess oh, he just good. like shot in the general direction. Uh, so he got Scary away. Yeah. But um, he wasn't so scared that like he remembered to take the keys out of the car, basically. <laughs> when he got out so uh emil so didn't realize this so so he moves like, all of hmm, what was that it basically seems like these two guys like somehow screwed with lady luck and pissed her off basically because <laughs> anything that could go wrong did go wrong 
which yeah. in this case they were doing wrong, they were doing bad things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's but it's like they just didn't get the hint. No, they 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 kept trying, but because uh, Emil didn't notice that there were no keys in the car, so he moves all of the weapons and ammo into the truck before realizing that the keys are missing. So at this point, while he's done all that, he just wasted a bunch of time doing all of that, only to have no getaway car. A patrol car, which was driven by two SWAT officers, showed up and stopped on the opposite side of the Jeep to where the original getaway car was stopped. Um, Emil got out of the truck and took cover from police behind the original getaway vehicle and they engaged in two and a half minutes of almost uninterrupted gunfire. Oh my god. Emil's body armor deflected two shots from one of the officers which briefly winded him before he was able to get back up and continue firing. They were eventually, this is how they took Emil down, they were able to shoot under the truck and hit him in the legs. And he's the Um, one who wasn't wearing leg armor, right? Yeah, Emil was the one who only had basically a vest on and with some added metal plating, but he didn't really have all out like Larry did. Yeah, like Larry had his shins and his legs. Yeah, he had everything. They got him and his unprotected legs, and he tried to surrender, but was being being very hostile and uncooperative. So as you know, with crime scenes and stuff like this that happens, the active shooting stuff... Uh, ambulance personnel were following their standard procedure and were refusing to enter the hot zone because he was still considered dangerous and because with everything that was going on, they thought that there was a third shooter still on the loose. So ambulances were not able to get into the scene. Some reports say that Emil was laying on the ground with no weapons for about an hour before ambulances were able to get to him. Supposedly he was pleading for help while at the same time like taunting and yelling at the police officers. So I don't know how he thought those two things were going to help him, you know, together asking for help and then yelling at someone. So, but police radioed and tried to get him in ambulance and EMTs, but Emil kept loudly swearing and repeatedly goading the police to shoot him in the head. But eventually he died from trauma and blood loss before the EMTs were allowed to reach the scene about 70 minutes later. The report for Emil would show that he was shot a total of 29 times in the legs. Oh my god. And Larry was shot 11 times, including the self-inflicted wound to the chin. And again, like I said, most of this incident, including the death of Larry and the surrender of Emil, all of this was broadcast live by news helicopters. So like from start to finish, if you were watching the news that morning, you were going to see coverage of this all morning. You were going to be watching this gunfight go down. In the middle of the street, there were over 300 officers from various forces that responded to this citywide alert. By the time the shooting had stopped, Larry and Emil had fired about 1,100 rounds, approximately one round every two seconds. Holy crap. Yep. And that and this includes had time of them not firing their weapons. Yep. So this, this happened on February 28th, because later on, on April 17th, same year, The local police raided a house in Anaheim that was traced back to these two. And boy, guess what they found? More weapons? Oh, so much. Oh my god. They seized incendiary AK-47 ammo. Now, to be specific, for those that are not aware, this is ammo that uh, will basically catch fire, whatever it hits, if it's flammable. The only Um, reason I know that is because of the Dread movie. You haven't seen that, have you? Uh, um, um, maybe I have not. No, it is on the list. Gotta watch the one. There's so much on the list. Not the one with Sylvester Stallone. One with Carl Urban. One of those movies, yes. Whichever one you're talking about, yes, it's that one. It's really good. But he has a gun that he can. (laughs) This is why I should not explain movies. But he can talk to his gun, and Mm -hmm. like, kind of like a Siri or uh, Alexa type. He's got Siri on his gun, bro. Yeah, but he'll just be like incendiary and then it's like and then that's the that's the round that he's, he shoots and it catches on fire. Okay, that's interesting. But on top of this incendiary ammo, they also found more ballistic vests, uh, specifically flak jackets, um, ballistic helmets, about $400,000 in stolen cash, other various firearms, one of which in particular was a short-barreled AR-15 with a red dot sight on it, which was later released from evidence for use by local law enforcement. That's, um, that's odd. Yeah, they, they were just like, hey, 
we can use this. It's like a fancy new toy. Uh, you know, let's just... Yeah. Yeah, like rather than getting rid of it, you know, we'll, we'll we'll put it to use for for good rather than evil. True, true. It's just I thought like legally they had to destroy all that. I thought so too, but like I I have no idea. I don't know why this one stood out to them that they were going to keep, but out of the various firearms that they found, so they kept that one. Huh. I guess they liked that one. I don't know. It was pretty. Yeah, but here's here's the crazy part. If that wasn't crazy enough, Emil's <laughs> family would later sue two police officers and the city, claiming that they were indifferent to his wounds at the scene and just let him die. So, like I like I said, mm -hmm. um, in the last episode, that any loss of life is a horrible thing, and like I'm not saying it's right. Like I'm not saying you should deny him anything you know that you should try to help yeah. him however you shouldn't put some ambulance guy who went to work that morning expecting like heart attack victims and something in the middle of a live fire situation like yeah. maybe if you have a combat medic uh, you know one of the cops or something like that knew knew how to you know s slow things down or whatever maybe but you can't yeah, yeah, and I, th I think that comes back to, like, the time frame that this happened. Like, the police officers weren't very equipped for that sort of thing. Like, they didn't carry, like, all the gear that, like, they do now with, like, the little small medical kits and stuff where they can do minor stuff on scene before EMTs get there. Yeah. They really just had the bare minimum. But this case was declared a mistrial in 2000 and was later dismissed. But it was this shootout that made the LAPD realize that the small caliber handguns that they had were not quite enough for what they should probably have. And eventually, they received 600 M16 rifles from the Pentagon. LAPD patrol cars now carry AR-15s and are equipped with bullet-resistant Kevlar plating in their doors. The, the LAPD also author authorized its officers to carry slightly higher caliber handguns as their sidearms. Also from this, 18 officers received medals of valor and were invited to meet then-President Bill Clinton. And uh, there's also a film, apparently, that was made about this incident in 2004 called 44 Minutes, The North Hollywood Shootout. But that's basically the whole story. That's crazy. One, thing leads, one bad thing leads to another, and it's just all spiraling out of control. Yeah, like, I, I feel like I'm going to have a better frame of reference for, like, when I'm having one of those days, and it's like I wake up... And something little, slightly inconvenient happens. I burnt my toast or something like that. And then, like, it's like, what are those days? You know, I didn't go heavily armed into a bank and uh, totally end up in a shootout. Robbery, end up in a shootout, get me and my partner killed, and uh, also wound tons of innocent people, you know. And be the cause of, you know, uh, police policy being changed yeah yeah so that burnt toast isn't so bad anymore yeah suddenly it's not so bad our next story we have another one if that wasn't crazy enough uh, we have another crazy story this one's not about uh not about shootouts or bank robberies this one's about a a, a man who um just got fed up with his his city council and uh Things going wrong for him, and then he's just like, you know what, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So this is the story of Marvin Hemeyer. He was a welder and muffler repair shop owner who lived in Grand Lake, Colorado, about 16 miles outside of Granby, which is where he eventually moved to 10 years before this incident took place. In 1992, he had purchased two acres of land from a Resolution Trust Company, which was a federal agency that was organized to handle the assets of like failed savings and loan institutions. He bought this two acres for $42,000 and was planning on building his new muffler repair shop. But he uh, kind of caused problems for himself because uh, after he bought this land, he eventually decided to sell it to the, uh, I'm probably going to butcher their last name, the Docheff family because they wanted to build a concrete plant. The price they had originally agreed on was 250000 
But Susan Docheff claimed that Heemeyer had changed his mind and increased the price to $375,000 and then later demanded a deal worth a million dollars. For his $42,000 piece of land. Two acre land, yeah. That, so, like, when you when you try to flip something, you gotta be reasonable. <laughs> you know I feel like I mean? if you bought it for 42000 the 250000 would have been a pretty good takeaway. Yeah, yeah. Really, like, looking at that, that's, like, kind of the thing that started all of this. So, like, had he just took the 250000 and, you know, moved on, I feel like none of this would have happened. But, so, some people say that this negotiation happened before a rezoning proposal was heard by the town's council. Uh, in 2001, the zoning commission and the town's trustees had approved the construction of the concrete plant. Heemeyer had appealed this decision, but he was unsuccessful. Before the rezoning took place, Heemeyer had been using this land to get to get to his shop. It was sort of like a pathway, like a road for him to be able to get to his shop. But with the new factory in place, his original path was blocked and he could no longer go that way. On top of this, with the building of the plant, it cut off access to his uh, sewer. This is what I've heard. Now, this may not be 100% true, but I've heard that the concrete plant being built here they were unable to hook up his muffler repair shop to a sewer line because it would have to go under the concrete plant and it was just not going to work. But he was fined uh, $2,500 by the city uh, for just various violations, not just that. It was junk cars on the property and on top of not being hooked up to the sewer line. He, he had no other choice but decided he decided to petition the city with his neighbors and friends, but this didn't do anything at all. So his shop couldn't function without the sewer line or the cooperation of the town, which he didn't have either. So he's kind of like stuck at this point. So in early 2003, Marvin had decided that, that he was out of options and he had had enough. He began to convert his Komatsu bulldozer into what he referred to as the MK tank. He outfitted this bulldozer with armor plating, which covered the cabin, the engine and parts of the tracks. In certain places, this armor was over one foot thick and had 5,000 PSI quickcrete concrete mix between the sheets of tool steel that he got from an auto dealer. Oh my god. So Marvin had successfully made a small armored vehicle that could withstand small arms fire and was resistant to explosions. My man basically made a tank. Now, for visibility, because, you know, can't have any openings... Uh, he put two monitors inside the cabin of the bulldozer and hooked several cameras to them. The cameras were, he thought about, you know, the cameras being taken out, so he encased those in three-inch shields of clear bullet-resistant plexiglass. I mean, at least he put some thought into it. Yeah, but wait, it gets more complicated. These cases around the cameras were fitted with compressed air nozzles to blow away any dust or debris that could otherwise obstruct the cameras. So they even had like little cleaning spots for the for the clear glass. So wouldn't it have been cute if he had little windshield wipers on him? <laughs> Bro, squeak, squeak, squeak. <laughs> like he thought so much about it. He even had uh, onboard fans and an air conditioner to keep him cool inside here. Did he have like a a bucket or something too, just in case he had a tinkle? I mean, nope. There was not even a door. So basically, once he got in this thing, we'll cover over how that how that went down in a minute. But um, there was no way out once this armor was put on. Addition to all this, he had cut three gun ports for a 50 caliber rifle, a 308 semi-automatic rifle, and a small 22 rifle, which is just like you know, basically a squirrel gun. Don't know what he was going to use that for, but probably nothing good. All of these ports were fitted with one half inch thick steel plates. The bulldozer was basically both a tank and a coffin. He had no intention of leaving the cabin once he was inside. Now, being a muffler repair shop, he had a shop crane, which he used to... He basically built a steel case that would sit over top of the bulldozer's frame. Mm-hmm. So he could use the crane once he was inside. I don't know if it's like he pulled the the controller in with him. I don't know how that worked, but he used the crane to lower the armored hull on top of the uh, the bulldozer once he was inside. So once it was on top, it wasn't no taking it off. It was estimated that it took him over a year and a half to finish this project. 
Don't know how anyone didn't notice this because apparently he had some people that came by the shop while he was working on it and they just like didn't pay any attention to that going on in the corner. I feel like over a year and a half, he could have sold the place and left. And yeah, no, but he decided to take it to the next level and he, he didn't really need to do all that. A bulldozer. Sounds like uh, on June 4th, I mean, I would do it not to destroy the town, but to just be like, Haha, I have an armored bulldozer, because why not? But on June 4th, 2004, he entered the bulldozer and lowered the hull on top of it, and then he would head out for the town of Granby. He started off by going through the wall of his former business and the concrete plant before heading into town to demolish the town hall, the uh, office of the local newspaper that wrote an article against him, the home of the former mayor in which the mayor's widow still resided, and a hardware store owned by another man that Hemeyer had named in a lawsuit, as well as several other buildings. For some reason, I have no idea why, it was noted that he had leased his muffler repair shop to a trash company about several months before he did this. Don't, I, don't, I don't know why. I guess so they could clean up after. Maybe. <laughs> like, hey, you guys are going to want to stop by here soon, it's about to get real. But this whole rampage lasted uh, two hours and seven minutes, and he damaged 13 buildings and knocked out natural gas service to the town hall and the concrete plant, as well as damaging a truck and destroying part of a utility service center. The uh, estimated cost for all of this damage was around $7 million in property damage. According to uh, the county commissioner, emergency dispatchers were able to use the reverse 911 system to alert many residents and property owners about this bulldozer before he got to them. So thankfully, okay. like, no one was hurt in this whole thing. Oh, good. He fired 15 bullets from his bulldozer at power uh, transformers and propane tanks. Thankfully, they didn't rupture because the sheriff's department had stated that if they did rupture and explode, anyone with one half mile of the explosion could have been endangered. Oh my god. But uh, Cody Dochev had attempted to stop Marvin when he went through the concrete plant by using a large scraper. It's like a really big tractor thing that they use. It's a big piece of machinery. Way bigger than his bulldozer. But Marvin just, you know, shot at in his general direction and then just pushed it to the side and just kind of, you know, it's just like, I'm just going to move you out of the way. After that, he would later fire on two state patrol officers as well as the sheriff as well. The sheriff's department later noted that 11 of the 13 buildings that he destroyed were occupied until just before they were destroyed. So like people got lucky. They got out like a last minute. Yeah, I that's I, I um, do not want to be in a building that had that come through. I think if I saw that on the news and it was in my town, I'd be like, "Hey, I'm just going to go. I'll come back when this is done." Yeah, I think I have something to do over there. Yeah, so, like, you know, two states over. <laughs> I like how you don't what? even leave town. You're like, I'm going to go to another state. It's okay. Yeah, no, like, let's let's just leave. I don't know how far he's going with this, but I think it's best to just, you know, get a good ways away. Uh, one, one officer tried to stop this thing by dropping a flashbang grenade down the exhaust pipe of the, uh, the bulldozer, but this didn't do anything at all. Local and state patrol, and even the SWAT team, they were just kind of like walking behind and beside the bulldozer, just occasionally shooting at it, but because of the armor, it didn't really do anything, but just like... Yeah, because bulldozers aren't fast. Yeah, no, they could. They were able to walk around this thing. They were Attempts were even made by officers to like disable the cameras by shooting them out, but because of the plexiglass, they couldn't do anything. Like at one point, one officer was able to climb on top of the bulldozer and try to find a way in, but he had to jump off because he was driving through buildings. He didn't want to get hit by rubble and stuff like that, so he had to get off. At this point, they, they have no clue how to stop this thing because they're out of options for firepower, and they feared that he would eventually turn on civilians. Governor Bill Owens considered authorizing the National Guard to use a Hellfire missile from an Apache helicopter. What? Or a two-man team equipped with a Javelin anti-tank missile. Oh my god. And as late as 2011, his staff denies considering this course of action. But since then, state patrol members revealed that the governor did in fact consider this as an option, but decided against it due to the collateral damage that that would cause. Because, <laughs> you know... A little bit. It would, it would, it, yeah, a just, little just a bit little bit. But luckily, they didn't have to do anything anymore. like that. Yeah, no, we, let's just get rid of the whole town at this point. You guys want to evacuate? 
But thankfully they didn't have to do anything like that because he drove through the hardware store and he fell into the basement and couldn't get out. <laughs> it's like in a Christmas story. I've fallen, I can't get up! Yes, quite literally. Like I, I guess he didn't realize there was a basement there and when he went through the bulldozer just, you know, fell through. Well, I mean, you, I can't imagine how heavy that thing was. Yeah, not only was it a bulldozer, it also had all this ton, like, tons concrete of pounds of, metal. you know, concrete, steel, yeah. So he's now stuck in the basement of this hardware store, and uh, various problems came out of that because the, uh, the radiator of the bulldozer had been damaged, and now the engine had failed and was leaking various fluids. But soon after, a member of the SWAT team that had been near the dozer reported hearing a single gunshot from inside the cabin. Oh, it no. was later determined that he Meyer took his own life with a 357 handgun. Uh, that was the only death slash injury from this whole thing, other than like the businesses that were destroyed. Like no one else was hurt. He just so destroyed buildings. He really never intended to leave that tank. No, uh, like he he knew when he built that thing that like once this top goes on, I ain't coming out of here. But now the police had the fun job of getting this thing open. They tried to use explosives to remove the steel plating, but after three of those attempts had failed, they had to resort to cutting through the plates with an oxyacetylene cutting torch. They were finally able to remove his body at 2 a.m. on June 5th. And uh, after all of that, on April 19th, 2005, the town announced a plan to scrap the bulldozer by dispersing individual pieces to keep people from coming up and taking souvenirs from this thing, because I guess some people would possibly want a souvenir of that thing for some reason. Uh, it's so messed up, but yeah, people do that. But although no one was killed during the rampage, his dozer had been given the name Killdozer after a 1944 short story of the same name by Theodore Sturgeon. I don't know how these two are related. I'm not familiar with the story or why they decided to give it that name, but that's what it's been called now. So, But he, he did kind of give a reason for this to suggest that he was not mentally well. Because uh, he had several writings that he'd left on the wall of his shed and three audio tapes explaining everything. Uh, the tapes had two separate recordings on each side for a total of six recordings. And he mailed these to his brother in South Dakota just before he got in the bulldozer. That's but, really um, sad, though. That's really yeah, sad. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of things could have been done to prevent this. But uh, he just it seems like a case of him not getting the help that he needed kind of thing which is unfortunately a lot of the cases in in like most of these the crime stuff is like people not getting the help that they need or in the yeah. way that they need it well i know probably sometime down the road we'll talk about the manson family but i know um when he was younger and he was in institutions and prisons and things like that he asked them to not let him go he's like i like it here i don't want to leave but the same thing happened, like, it, it's a fairly more recent one, too, but they have documentation of him going to medical care month after month after month saying, I need help. I, I, if you put me back out in society, something bad will happen. Please help me. Please don't release me. Please don't let me go. And they did. And the person went on to. And something bad violence. happened. Yeah, and it's just like, how can you, like, if I understand that, yes, there's overcrowding and yes, there are things, but how can you just let someone like that just go? They literally you know? just told you they're going to hurt someone or do something bad and you yeah. like that's and you let them go. How do you? Yeah. Like, why don't you give them access? That's a, that seems like a special that. case where it's like this person we need to keep. Or get them the help that they need. Get them into yeah, some sort or send of them somewhere that program. can house them. Yeah, because I mean, I'm I am a huge advocate for taking care of your mental health. Um, Cracko knows, but maybe not all our yes. listeners know that I do suffer with my own mental health issues. But you need to take care of them, just like your physical health. It is just the same. I mean, if you if you had cancer, would you not go to the doctor? So if exactly. you have a mental illness, you should you should go to the doctor. You should get it. This is my very un 
eloquent way of saying, get the help you need. <laughs> this is a very, uh, very nice way of saying, take care of yourself or I'm going to punch you. <laughs> but yeah, that that's a, that's really sad. Like if he had gotten the help he needed, if he had just been able to move on um, from this shop, from the area and all that stuff, you know, who knows what he could have done with his life. Yeah. Because uh, we'll touch a little bit more on um, his reasoning for it. There's some quotes from his tapes and stuff here. Because uh, his brother turned those tapes over to the FBI, uh, who then turned those sent those over to the Grand County Sheriff's Department. And uh, finally, the tapes were released on August 31st, 2004. They're about two and a half hours long. And uh, the first recording was made on April 13th, 2004, and the last was made just 13 days before his rampage on May 27th. So he was recording these, I guess, while he was building Okay. this thing. Yeah. But in, in the first recording, he stated that God built me for this job. He also stated that it was God's plan that he not be married or have a family so that he could carry out this attack. Uh, he also said that I think God will bless me to get this machine done, to drive it, to do the stuff that I have to do. Uh, God blessed me in advance for the task that I'm about to undertake, that it's my duty. God has asked me to do this. It's a cross I'm going to carry, and I'm going to carry it in God's name. Uh, investigators also found a list of t uh, targets, which included the buildings that he destroyed, along with the local Catholic church, which he didn't destroy, and the names of several people who were against him in past disputes. Uh, notes were also found that stated that his primary motivation for the rampage was to stop the concrete factory from being built near his shop. Uh, he said, I was always willing to be reasonable until I had to be unreasonable. He said, sometimes reasonable men must do unreasonable things. So one of the things, and I'm, I'm obviously not a medical professional, I am not diagnosing anything, but I do know over the years, people who hear voices whether it be schizophrenia or some other sort of um, auditory hallucination, anything like that, because of the way it comes in through your mind and through your senses, people often equate it to talking to God. They think God is talking to them. So it is possible that perhaps he was having some sort of either uh, some sort of episode or auditory hallucination, and that's what he thought was God when it was really just his no. mental health. Again, I'm not. I'm not saying I. I know this for a fact. I'm not diagnosing anything, but I do know that there have been many stories over the years of similar things. So, just hearing yeah. him say that God told me. But it also makes it even sadder that he was like, I was always willing to be reasonable until I had to be unreasonable. It sounded like he didn't want to do that, but he felt like he was pushed to do it, so to speak. He felt but, he had nothing else, nothing, yeah. no other choice. It's really, really sad. Thanks for yeah, that one, everybody down, Kraken. Yeah, we, we ended it on a sad one, so... I mean, they're both... I mean, it's it's crime stories. What about it is happy, to this be fair? This is true. They're good stories, though. It's still interesting that, like, he built this thing, and no one noticed no one was like, hey, what's that for? That's going to do it for me. All right. Well, good job, Krakow. Um, Next week, we will be back with a true crime story again. I actually am really excited about it. It's going to be another one of my stories. So hope to see you guys next week. And Kraken. Okay, bye.